flat is a state of mind. Get to know the people, science, and stories that make the Kansas outdoors more than flyover country. This is Flatlander Podcast, presented by the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks and the Kansas Wildlife Federation. What I see on my dirt is undescribable as the Bible. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Flatlander Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Lindsay. And I'm Tana. Thanks for tuning in with us today. So for this episode, we were inspired by perhaps one of my favorite quotes of all time. Um, It's by Aldo Leopold, who is renowned as like a father of conservation. Um, He was a forester, philosopher, educator, writer, and just all around outdoor enthusiast. So in his writings, he stated that conservation viewed in its entirety is the slow and laborious unfolding of a new relationship between people and land. And I just love that. And I think so often when we think about wildlife and conservation, we think about the resource. So we think about the wild spaces and faces that we're working to conserve. We often forget about the very real and sometimes messy element that is involved in that equation, which is, of course, the human element. And so that's what we're going to explore today. Absolutely. And we have a very special guest with us that really embodies that quote. She does a whole heck of a lot for our agency. And if you've been tapped for a KDWP Creel survey, you're probably familiar with her work. Susan Steffen is a human dimension specialist with the fisheries division of Kansas Wildlife and Parks. Susan writes, designs, and analyzes the results of surveys that help us better understand interactions between humans and our natural resources. Her findings help inform all aspects of fish and wildlife conservation and management. And Susan, I cannot even tell you how excited we are to have you here with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. I know very little about the human dimension side of wildlife and parks, so I've really been looking forward to this conversation and learning more about your role with our agency and how it all plays into work with um, not just our agency, but also our constituents. Do you mind taking a moment to introduce yourself a little bit? Tell us about you and your career. Sure, sure. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I haven't been back to Pratt in over a year. Oh my gosh, has yeah. it really been that long? Yeah, because of COVID, right? Wow. So my office is in the Emporia Research and Survey Office, but um, let me just give you a little bit of background in terms of how I got to where I am. I grew up in Dallas, Texas, a suburb of Dallas. So uh, like not many people in the agency, you know, I didn't really grow up hunting and fishing very much because I was in such an urban area. My folks really didn't enjoy a whole lot of outdoor activities. My mom, um, my mom was a social worker and my dad was an internet security engineer. He had one of those jobs where he couldn't quite tell you what he did because then, you know, it's top secret and he'd get he'd fired. He'd have to kill you. He'd have Seriously. to kill you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I kind of attribute them to kind of where this this mesh involved in terms of my skill set where I'm very analytical and logical but then because of the the social worker influence from my mom I'm also very empathetic and uh, aware of emotions and just kind of the the soft skills per se I guess is what people sometimes call them but yeah so I knew from an early age I enjoyed fish I always wanted to be a scientist, and I didn't know what kind, but for some reason, I kept coming back to fish. Uh, Jurassic Park came out when I was young, and 
Then I wanted to be a geneticist. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> then I saw Ellie, Dr. What's her name? Dr. Hardy. From Kant? <laughs> <laughs> what? I don't know what just happened. <laughs> uh, are you talking about contact with the aliens? Is that, no. Am I so off base? <laughs> but I've seen that movie. I was talking about the chick on Jurassic Park, Ellie. Oh, uh, the botanist, the paleobotanist. The paleobotanist. Oh. I was like, I don't know what that is, but I want to do that. <laughs> I don't oh, know awesome. where my brain <laughs> We went from, from marine fishes and my brain went straight to aliens. <laughs> Remember when we had that conversation about you being scared of the things in your driveway? I'm starting to wonder. It's my imagination. <laughs> Good to have one. Then life would be boring, right? Yeah. <laughs> so so you that movie was kind of inspirational for you and, and solidified your um, desire to be a scientist in some regard. Yeah, yeah, definitely. At one point I wanted to do geology. I just was across the board really into science. Always like, why is this? What, what is this? Why? Why is this happening? So I, I really enjoyed science. But I stuck with fisheries, and I went to Texas A&M Galveston for my bachelor's in marine fisheries, not marine biology. Okay, there's a big difference there because marine biology is more so the study of cetaceans, whales, dolphins, marine mammals, whereas marine, really? yeah, yeah. There's, I didn't know that. There's a either. clear distinction there in the fisheries versus marine biology world. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, so I was definitely focused on the fisheries aspect, and the coursework is quite a bit different. But uh, Texas A&M was one of the better fishery schools, so that's why I chose to go there and obviously in-state tuition. Nice. Yeah. So that was nice. And then I decided I wanted to go to graduate school and kind of met someone. You know how that goes. You're young, you fall in love. Decided to go to Mississippi State University, and I got my master's in wildlife and fisheries, but I also have a minor in sociology. So human dimensions wasn't really something I could foresee that I was going to go into. I kind of fell into it. Yeah. There was a position open and a, a project that was funded. It was related to studying anglers at two lakes in northwest Mississippi. I Took it on, and it was it was wonderful, and I I fell in love with human dimensions, the human dimensions aspect for sure, yeah, and then, gosh, next sorry September will be twelve years that I've worked for the agency. Oh my gosh! Yeah, can you believe it? I came I came to uh, wildlife and parks right after graduate school. I mean, within months of graduating. Dang, twelve years. That's awesome. Yeah. Then my husband also works for Wildlife and Parks, Chris. He's the Aquatic Nuisance Species Coordinator, uh, also in the Emporia office. We have two kids, Amelia and Annabelle, and two dogs, Daisy and Prim, two cats, Serafina Donuts, three chickens. What are the cats' names again, Susan? Donuts and Serafina. Okay, I did not even hear the and in there. I thought one of your cats was Serafina Donuts. <laughs> that would be a good one, too. You've got some really great nicknames for your kiddos, too, don't you? Yes, yes. So when they are very upset and crying, 
We have Wannabelle and Squealia. <laughs> okay. I haven't heard those yet. That's clever. <laughs> Which they really don't appreciate that, especially when they're in the throes of a tantrum. Oh, don't uh, tell them about this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but then also Annabelle, we call her Squirmo because yes. she would not stop moving ever since she was born. <laughs> I think that's the only time, like, I never hear you refer to Annabelle as Annabelle. I heard you call her Squirmo, like, 90% of the time. Squirmo. Yeah, Squirmo. <laughs> I love that. We got her preschool teacher to start calling her that, too. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm so into this. That's I love so it. That's so funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she responds to it. <laughs> well, and uh, for Chris Stefan, we've got to do a quick shout out. Uh, make sure you clean, drain, dry, and educate yourself on those aquatic nuisance species. As a reminder, we've got a really cool quiz um, on our website at ksoutdoors.com. If you want to uh, make sure you're trained in ANS um, and controlling aquatic nuisance species spread in Kansas. That's my plug, Chris. I hope you're happy. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> he's, he's definitely going to appreciate that. Perfect. <laughs> Bought another listener today. Yeah. <laughs> well, Susan, anything else you want to tell us about your background or your career? Goodness. So I know I, we'll get into the meat of it a little more later, yeah, but yeah, sure. So I would just say in general, my role with wildlife and parks, I seem to have my hand in a lot of stuff. <laughs> um, I'm a Creole survey coordinator, which if you're not familiar with a Creole survey, um, a creel is that basket that you see sometimes that, like from the movie A River Runs Through It, the, the creel basket that they put the trout in. So that's where the word creel comes from. But we send technicians out to talk to people that are actively fishing to see what they're catching. We identify the fish and then take the length, and that tells us information about the fishery. So I coordinate the creel surveys statewide. Um, what else do I do? I do database management, some data mining, Project management, for example, um, redesigning our pretty much all our fisheries data that we collect. We went from having everything stored in you know just hodgepodge places to really having a, a one size fits all kind of location and structure for all our data, which is very important. I'm also a drone pilot, certified drone pilot. Human dimensions research is my bread and butter. I'm also involved with UTANA quite a bit. Oh on yeah. R3, and also I've recently been pretty active with DEI work, diversity, equity, inclusion work. Yeah. Yeah, the only real issue we have with Susan is that there's only one of her. <laughs> if we can clone her, oh my gosh. You know, she is technically in fisheries, but um, Susan's real great about <laughs> maybe spreading herself thin, but she helps out anywhere that she can, and we're so thankful for her. Um, and Susan, I can't emphasize enough how much we appreciate having you on with us today. Um, you're just, you're such an important guest, especially on this podcast. So if um, you all remember in our host episode, we talked about some of our goals for the podcast and a major theme of that was just connecting people to natural resources and the work done by KDWP and its partners. So advocating for agency relevancy in a sense by explaining what we do and why it matters to the entirety of our diverse constituency. Um, and then also understanding the unfolding of those relationships between people and our resources, which is just so vital to that process. And none of that would really be possible without the work you and others are doing in the human dimensions realm. So um, just want to express our, our gratitude to you there, make you blush a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> okay, so as a person who doesn't know a whole lot about the human dimension side of thing, things, 
um, in the history of wildlife conservation and management in the U.S., how has human dimension work always been considered an important part or an important point of emphasis? Or do you think our system is just now learning the role that human dimensions play? Right. So that's an interesting question. I would say, for the most part, human dimensions, which we also, in a way, can call it social science, like an applied form of social science, I think it's always been considered important in uh, conservation and management, but it may have not been necessarily called human dimensions or emphasized. And a lot of the work, I would say pre-1980, even um, related to human dimensions, was more of an afterthought and not something that was proactively considered in management. It was more perfunctory at that point. It was you know, just going through the motions, but not necessarily being familiar with it enough to learn how to apply the information. So I think that's the difference now is that pretty much from the 80s and forward, um, more so in the 2000s and, and current, we are starting to see more people being trained in human dimensions. It's now a part of the curriculum. When you get your degree, you have to have a certain number of credits for human dimensions. But now it's starting to be more widely accepted and just overall embraced, which is great. That's, yeah, that's been really good. <laughs> it's important. Yeah. And we're seeing agencies kind of beef up their human dimensions representation as well, aren't we? Like more um, job opportunities available for human dimensions specialists and things like that within state agencies. Yeah, for sure. So I would say most state agencies have at least one human dimensions person. If not, they have more than one or work out cooperative positions with universities or even the the feds like U.S. Fish and Wildlife. The feds just put out a job announcement for like 10 social science positions across the United States. Dang. Wow. Yeah, so they um, definitely wanted to beef up their HD. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's something we come across a lot, I think, in R3 recruitment, retention, reactivation work. Um, you know, maybe as an agency, we might have a, uh, a history or a reputation of basically just assuming that we know what our constituency wants. Um, you know, they want more areas to hunt and fish. They want more access for birding, kayaking, et cetera. But human dimensions really gives us a platform to actually get some of that data and find out rather than making assumptions, um, actually have data to back that information up and find out exactly what it is that our constituency does want and whether or not we're meeting those needs and desires. Much of the human dimensions information is just as rigorous and scientifically sound as your traditional, uh, typical biology type things that your management biologists collect. Mm -hmm. There's protocols and procedures and methods for standard sampling for fish. We have the same thing for people. It just looks a little different. But people in our field are not as familiar with that type of data collection. And it does require a little bit different of a skill set, being able to write questions and design studies in general, which, you know, it's not always survey work sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes you can get the information you need through data mining. But what we're trying to avoid is anecdotal information. So that's when you have people who see something going on. And don't get me wrong, observations are valid, right? Right. 
Perception is reality. So that is their reality, you know, what people see. However, we have to make sure that we are collecting information in just a rigorous method as our traditional data. So that may involve survey work and talking to people, but in a way that we select people that are um, randomly selected. So we're not trying to bias our sample the people that want to tell us the information, great, that's that's wonderful. And then as a social scientist, we have ways to get at those people who are a little bit more reluctant to uh, fill out a survey or talk <laughs> to us. And I've certainly gotten some comments like, enough already, leave me alone, <laughs> take me off your list. I'm like, there is no list. <laughs> it's just you. You're on it forever. <laughs> the universe is doing. <laughs> you bought a license. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So uh, certainly we um, we have our ways mm-hmm. of, of getting at the human component in a scientifically sound way, bottom line. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's, there can be a misconception. I'd like to say it's not around here, but there can be a misconception that human dimensions is like a softer science. And that's just a complete fallacy. Um, like Susan said, there's so much that goes, that goes into that. So I'm glad you made that point. Yeah. Thank you. And there's nothing to be ashamed of if you are good with soft skills, like, like me, it's, it is a very valuable asset (laughs) for sure. Being able to communicate effectively and be empathetic. But yeah, I would say that's one of the things I struggled with first in my career is that, and it was probably all just self, my own, you know, inadequacy or self-perception that my, my work wasn't as taken as seriously as traditional research, you know, aging growth studies of fish or creel surveys or whatever. But um, I am finding that the more research I do, the more valuable it is. And for sure people use the information that I get. And it in some ways some directs the, the future of, you know, management or can change reg- regulations change people's behavior. Yeah. It's very powerful. Mm-hmm. Well, it kind of alleviates some of that like squeaky wheel business of, we tend to hear from the people, like you said, that are the most passionate, but just because those people are the most passionate doesn't mean that they're the most representative of our diverse constituency. So it's, you, you really kind of flush some of that out. Not right. that we don't want to hear from those people, but <laughs> we want to make sure we represent everyone. Yeah, Absolutely. So can I ask you guys a question real quick here? Oh, man. <laughs> On the spot. <laughs> Nerves are turned. <laughs> My stomach is just like, <laughs> <laughs> What you got? The hosts are on the, the, the yeah. <laughs> um, so you brought up the squeaky wheel and it, it brought up something that I'm remembering. So one of the things that it really kind of boggles my mind in human dimensions is we have people who are very vocal about the resource. And the the survey work or the things that we send them, you know, it, it's very salient to them. It's very top of mind. So when we have, you know, a survey and we get back data, we have the people who are more vocal and more willing to respond. And then we have, you know, not as many maybe answers from the kind of average or below level participant, below average. What I'm getting at is the question for you guys should we manage by giving more weight to the people who are a little bit more involved in the resource 
as opposed to those who are a little bit more um, lackadaisical, if, if that's the right oh. word, yeah. in their participation. Kind of passive participants. Yeah, because they're not as, um, they don't invested. have as, they're not as invested or have as strong of feelings. Oh, what sometimes. an interesting that, question. Yeah, that is a good question. That keeps me up at night. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's hard because you tend to think um, the people that are most active in the outdoors and outdoor conservation, and of course there are always exceptions to this, but tend to be the people that also feel like they're represented. And so when someone doesn't see themselves represented in an activity, um, perhaps they don't feel comfortable speaking up about that activity. So it's like, if I don't see myself represented in uh, Comic-Con, then uh, no, if I got a survey about what I thought of Comic-Con, I probably wouldn't feel very like empowered or motivated to complete a survey on it. But I don't know. I mean, it's just, that's a weird example. That's the first thing I thought of, but. Comic-Con. Yeah, right. I don't know. There's that's, one coming up. You want to go? <laughs> yeah, that's where I don't feel represented. Lindsay, help. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I have to agree with Tana on this. But even though some of those people might not be comfortable expressing their opinions, their opinions about these things still matter because they are still benefiting from these experience on some level. Right. So yeah. it's so hard though. Cause yeah. like the people that are the most involved, of course, those are the people that you want to, I mean, you want to listen to their perspective and they're clearly through their involvement, educated about mm-hmm. their own experience and perception of that experience, whatever it is. Right. I, Jeez, think, Susan. I think this is an onion question. Like uh, the yeah. more yes. we look at it, more layers just peel away and it just gets a never like ending an onion. Like an ogre. <laughs> like an ogre. <laughs> I got layers. <laughs> bad Shrek, Shrek was made 20 years ago. It's 20 years Stop. old. Stop. Does I that make you feel old? Because I feel so old. I kind of feel a little old. That makes How me is that old. possible? I don't know, but Shrek 2 is the best one. I'm just going to put that out there. Is that the one where they, the with the, oh my gosh, the fairy godmother? The fairy godmother. Yeah. <laughs> we got to get back on track here because Susan stumped us with a tough question. Susan, what's your perspective before we move on? First of all, I don't think there is a right answer. Yeah. And yeah. second of all, welcome to my world because <laughs> nothing, hate it. Take it back. <laughs> people are not logical all the time. Very rarely, actually. We are creatures driven by emotion and by experience and all the things that make us who we are and our personalities. So there really isn't a right answer. But I think at a minimum, our agency should listen to everybody. And one of the things I really advocate for in human dimensions research and applying the information is making sure that whatever decisions we make, it's palatable. It's palatable for our constituents and it's palatable for the resource. You know, it leaves a good taste in your mouth, right? So that fine balance between trying to make people happy and have quality experiences but also making sure that we are protecting the resource and conserving it for future generations. That to me is the sweet spot. Mm -hmm. I just got a shiver. (laughs) Okay. So I've got another question for you, Susan. Could you explain to our listeners how you work with the fisheries division and uh, other divisions in the agency? Sure. I said earlier, I kind of have my hands in in a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. Specific to the fisheries division, that is where my position is housed. I'm in the Emporia Research and Survey Office, which is great. And what I love about it the most is that I'm, I don't supervise anyone, but I'm in, I would say, like a middle type role 
where I communicate to upper level administrators or supervisors, but then I also communicate and work closely with our frontline staff or field biologists. So it's like I have my hand and I have the pulse of both, you know, the top down and the bottom up type issues and problems. Mm -hmm. So then it's really this, this viewpoint of, okay, here's the issues I'm hearing from these people. Here's the potential issues I'm hearing from administrators who think very differently because their roles are so much different. Right. So I'm able to, in a way, just really comprehensively tackle an issue from, from all sorts of fronts. I am formally trained in fishery science. So, you know, I, I know about the resource as well and how, you know, the traditional ways of managing fish, but then I also have that sociology component. So I'm able to kind of marry those together, but that doesn't necessarily tell you about the fisheries division, but I really try and work hard to keep an ear open and make it known that for our field biologists, if they have an issue or a problem that they are seeing and want some help solving that from a a people aspect, I'm your girl, come to me and we'll figure something out. And likewise with our administrators. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not always a survey. Sometimes it's data mining or observations or counting people or who knows. Right. (laughs) Well, if there was ever any question as to Susan's uh, dedication and love for fisheries, uh, Susan rolled up on us today wearing a Lapomus Megalotus shirt, which is, of course, the long ear sunfish. Beautiful. Love it. That is a yes. sweet shirt. It is really rad. Thank you. <laughs> and you guys all heard she's in that Emporia Research and Survey office, so you know to send your fan mail to Emporia <laughs> for Susan. <laughs> well, um, Susan, I've had the pleasure of working with you on numerous different things. You know, you're highly involved in R3, which is fantastic because I'm not um, trained in human dimensions at all. So the work you do um, just kind of boggles my mind a little bit. It's maybe more than I can comprehend at times, but... You've been highly involved in our women's only hunter education surveys as well. Um, So the purpose of those courses is to provide hunter education opportunities and beyond some advanced hunter education opportunities as well to make sure that we're meeting the needs of women as they're getting into the outdoors. So um, I think there's a survey that came out in 2016 that stated that women uh, were one of the fastest growing groups in outdoor recreation, but unfortunately they have a higher drop-off rate. So for whatever reason, we weren't retaining all these new women that were coming into an outdoor activity, be it hunting, fishing, shooting sports, et cetera. Um, so we've been trying to put some programs in place to help alleviate that. And so Susan has played a huge role in helping us understand those women that are coming to our women's only hunter education classes and what motivates them, what additional uh, support and resources they might need moving forward. So that's been, it's been fun to work with you on that. Yeah, thanks. I've enjoyed it too. It's super fascinating. And thank you to, if you're listening and you filled out one of those surveys or attended one of our ladies only hunter education courses. We have a small sample size, so we really need more people to take that and we need to offer more, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> that would be a start too. Um, yeah. So one of the things that I've worked with you, Tana, on is designing questions so that once people take that course, we get feedback from them in terms of their level of participation. I think you already kind of gave a a rundown, a really good rundown. But what I'm trying to do as well is ground the the survey in theory. Mm -hmm. And I'm not 
going to get too technical here other than to say there's a process that people go through when they start recreating in the outdoors, particularly hunters and anglers. It's called the outdoor recreation adoption model. And so one of the things that I try and do is make sure that what I'm asking those participants on the survey, I can take back and relate to the theory and figure out perhaps where we might be missing the boat in terms of getting people, not just women, but, mm-hmm. but anyone really participating in hunting. And if they happen to lapse or, um, yeah, just don't come back, then that way we can also look at that from a different aspect. The gender, the gender thing really, um, boggles my mind. So, I've dug into the literature a little bit, and this might be a, a rabbit hole, but we're doing it. I have found that when it comes to women and our leisure time, which you know, hunting and fishing is is leisure time, um, our leisure time is not as fluid as men. Because if you are the woman in a family, um, more than likely. If there are things that need to be done, the, the woman is going to be giving up her leisure time. And that's something that's just in the in the literature and people have researched that before. So I think that speaks to the, the um, yes, we're seeing a lot of women get into it, but then just that inconsistency with retaining them mm-hmm. is just that's how our society is. And that's some of the things that women have to cope with is um, our leisure time. And I'm going to geek out again here. So I've (laughs) just done the licensed angler survey. Um, We had that going on last year during COVID. And I asked some questions about people's fishing participation during COVID. And I found that women's participation was significantly increased compared to men. Fishing participation during COVID. Mm -hmm. Women were able to go more often. And that was significantly different. And then I looked at the social groups that people were fishing with. Rightfully so because of COVID, right? People were fishing less often with friends or coworkers or their tournament buddies. Mm -hmm. They were fishing more with family. And so I think that aspect also, because they're fishing with family, that aspect showed up in in the females having increased participation as well. Huh. Isn't that fascinating? That is really fascinating. Yes, it really is. Yeah. I think, I mean, I don't want to speak for all women because I'm a weirdo, but when we talked about this (laughs) in the host episode, like when I, sometimes when I'm out in the outdoors, I feel a sense of guilt. I think I remember Nadia and I chatted about that a little bit in the host episode of like, I think about things that I could or should be doing, whether that's answering work emails or folding laundry, or if you have kids, it might be childcare. Um, you know, just all the other little things. And sometimes I wonder if those men just go out there and just like sit and enjoy and don't feel that guilt. And maybe they do, maybe they don't. But um, it just makes me wonder if, if women are more prone to that. Lindsay's like giving me a weird look. Am I a man? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Lindsay doesn't feel guilty in the outdoors. Lucky Lindsay. <laughs> you and me, Tana, we need to have a conversation right. about self-care. Apparently. <laughs> oh no, this is not a cry for help. I promise. <laughs> Uh, time is valuable you need it too yes 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 jeez louise (laughs) we went there (laughs) um okay so this this uh 
this data that you're getting from these surveys and all these people that you're talking with, um, how do you use the data? Like what happens after you have gathered all of this information, applied theories to it, what happens? And then what do you do with the responses from the Creel survey? I assume that you just pull that data from the surveys, but then what do you, like, what do you do with it? Mm-hmm. Oh, this is where the magic happens. This is where <laughs> everything just oh, comes into place. Oh my gosh, so, I love it. I'm excited. <laughs> I'm a data nerd too. I love doing the the stats and just figuring out what the data is telling me. It's really cool to uncover it. I feel like a detective. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh. So for example, let's take Creel surveys. So we have information kind of in two parts. A Creel survey includes counting the number of people fishing. So that is a measure of pressure. Just how many people are utilizing that resource? Right. And we get that by having a very rigid schedule that our technician goes out and counts people different times of the day, different uh, periods of the day, weekday, weekend. It's all very uh, down to the nitty gritty. So we have information about fishing pressure, but then also we conduct interviews. So we're asking people, hey, how long are you fishing? What are you fishing for? We Figure out how many people are in the fishing party. So if it's two people or five, that factors in as well. We see what they're catching. We identify the species, take lengths, and we also ask them what kind of fish they're releasing and to estimate the size, which, of course, you know, people overestimate greatly. (laughs) Fishermen overestimating the size of their fish. They're all liars. (laughs) What? (laughs) So what we do with that information is... One way I can describe it is is almost like a barometer. So what's really good is to have trend data. So if you conduct a creel survey over several years, or at least, you know, two or three, if you start to notice something going amiss or like, oh, what's going on there? So let's say the majority of your anglers are fishing for largemouth bass. That's what they're targeting. And then throughout your creel survey, you're starting to see a drop and they're switching to another species. Well, that could mean multiple things, right? But it's almost like this barometer to try and, um, for our management biologists to figure out, okay, is this a problem? What's going on? Um, you know, do I have largemouth bass virus? My, my fishery isn't doing so good. I'm losing my big fish. What's going on here? Or, hey, maybe the crappie, you know, crappie are notoriously kind of cyclic. <laughs> You'll have, you know, a couple of good years and then it'll just suck for a few um, so maybe you got a good crappie fishery coming on and you can start to see that. Um, yeah. So figuring out, you know, target species, looking at fishing pressure. We also relate, you know, a single impoundment fishing pressure to impoundments all across the state. And so you can see a biologist can see where their lake would fall out in terms of the typical reservoir. So if you're starting to see a huge drop in pressure, there might be something going on with the the quality of the fishing experience that people are just not coming anymore. Um, that seems like all kind of gee whiz stuff, but we also ask people, how satisfied are you with your fishing trip? And that gets reported to the legislature. We record the percentage of people who rate their trip, um, I think it's fair or higher, and that is something that we report as a performance indicator to the legislators. So if we are starting to see a decline in satisfaction, that also 
impacts us. We need to figure out what's going on. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So Susan, would you say that that's maybe the most rewarding component of your job is seeing some of those, um, you know, the data and analytics that you've pulled come full circle and affect the resource or affect um, a user's experience? Yeah, that really is the most rewarding aspect is, uh, so for example, um, the last licensed angler survey I did was in 2013. And I've had several people in the fisheries division tell me that they have that on their bookshelf in their office and they pull it down and they constantly pull it out and refer to it. It's almost like a reference guide for them. Oh, that's awesome. And that makes me feel really good because that information is being consumed and utilized to manage the resource. And not only that, but it can also help us set the future direction for regulations, for um For example, walleye management, I had some data to show that, uh, for instance, one of our biologists wanted to increase to a 21-inch minimum length limit on walleye, and I was able to say, people are not going to like this. You're going to have a lot of opposition. And I said, but in the places that we've already had this regulation in place, it is accepted. So what happens is, initially, there is some strong opposition, and then as people become more familiar with it and start to realize the benefits of that increased limit, then they warm up. So almost like this, this warning system, like, Hey, (laughs) hang in there. You're going to get some calls, but let's, let's see how this pans out, you know, caution. So also trying to help inform our, our guys about regulation changes and how well they will be received that. Yeah. Just being able to, have that information at hand. It helps us make better decisions as a division. Wow. Dang, that is a big deal. <laughs> I'm just, bam. Yeah. Mind blown. <laughs> There's a lot that goes into that. And I, um, I almost feel like a humble brag here on this episode because it's like, I'm able to kind of hide in the background and that information is out there and it's used, but it's not something that you can really see going on. You know what I mean? It's But it influences it influences it so much. Right. Right. I I have, you know, just those those goosebump feeling too. It's just um and I wouldn't have known that some of that stuff if people hadn't told me like, hey, I refer to that all the time. Like that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Do an internal survey. That's right. <laughs> I've done a couple of those. <laughs> well, I'd like to remind everyone you can send your fan mail for Susan Stefan to the Emporia Research and Survey Office of KDWP. I like pictures too. <laughs> yeah, I did a hand fishing pictures. survey and I had a gentleman draw this. Uh, this was in Mississippi actually. So uh, in Mississippi, they're allowed to use artificial structures, but you can't do that here in Kansas. Mm. So they drew me a picture of a hand fishing box that somebody had made. And uh, there's this catfish sticking his head out and he's got sharp teeth and you see the hand and they, oh, it was such good artwork. Oh, I love it. My fan mail. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> set up a separate mailbox for you at that office. <laughs> like, hey, Susan's, Susan's fan, fan mail. mail. <laughs> Susan's normal mailbox and then Susan's fan mail. Yeah. And it's just oh, overflowing. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Susan, you know, you've talked a lot about what you do locally, which is so much, but um, I'm curious about the level of collaboration that happens with human dimensions work in wildlife and conservation on a national level. 
And then maybe if you would share with us a little bit about like what might be a hot button topic in human dimensions right now at the national level. Sure. I have to say, I think the most hot button topics are not necessarily in fisheries. Um, CWD, chronic wasting disease, there's a huge need to understand um, people's behaviors surrounding the take of deer in areas that are impacted by CWD. What else? Um, pretty much like landscape level initiatives. How can we, um, as biologists, help connect with landowners and help them get enrolled in some of these programs? And that way, um, you know, at the landscape level, it's it's much more impactful when you have that. Um, what am I trying to say? That synergy of so many people doing that. Um, but working with landowners, you know, most people got into this field to touch animals or study fish and not talk to people so much. So <laughs> there's a lot of human dimensions work involved with how do we get people to come along with us? <laughs> yeah. Well, Susan, because you mentioned it, um, I do want to point our listeners to a CW. Oh my goodness. A CWD related resource that we have. Um, we have a campaign going on right now in Kansas called Take Aim at the Spread. Um, it has information and resources on how you can help slow the spread of chronic wasting disease. So um, you can find out more about that at cwdks.com. If you're curious, um, get on there and uh, look at ways that you can maybe help out um, in preventing that spread in Kansas. That's my little plug. Plug. <laughs> you got a lot of little plugs today. Girl, yeah. I'm on it. <laughs> Very um, on point with relevant things. Not like our, you know, contact diversion squirrel <laughs> from earlier. Hey, shiny objects are welcome. <laughs> oh, goodness. It's like a fish lure. Oh, no. Here shiny. we go. <laughs> shiny. Uh, <laughs> Lindsay's that fish that gets caught and then released and then caught again because the object is still shiny. <laughs> I am offended. <laughs> Just kidding, true. guys. <laughs> She's like, I keep coming back. It's just so shiny. It's still it shiny. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, let's see here. Oh, the relevancy roadmap. Oh, <gasps> it's time. Yes. Okay. We'll bring it. Please talk briefly about the roadmap. Give us the lowdown. Wow. The roadmap is phew. So first of all, when I brought up the idea of the relevancy roadmap to the R3 task force. I think it was Nadia uh, asked me, she goes, where's the roadmap? (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, yes. Okay. (laughs) It is a 120 something page document that helps agencies like ours, like uh, Kansas Wildlife and Parks navigate some of the societal and um, changing issues and relate that to conservation and management of resources. So from, let's just say, our demographics in the United States are changing. We have more diverse people. And we are also seeing a change in people's wildlife values. So what I mean by that is most people, let's say, you know, 50 years ago, were more utilitarian. And traditionalist is, I think, the proper term where um, animals exist for our use. We hunt, we use their fur, 
and on the opposite spectrum are mutualists who believe that animals have a right to exist and almost have the same level of rights and value as humans. So these are, of course, there's some middle going on here, but those are the two polar opposites. But what we're seeing from some human dimension studies is that we are going from a society that is more traditionalist to more mutualist. We're more urbanized and not as many people are connected to the resource through, you know, being directly tied to the land. We have more people in big cities. So that can bring some challenges. And as an agency, how do we uh, work through some of those barriers? Because in a way, if we don't, our agency will not be relevant. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's called the relevancy roadmap. So it really addresses some of these issues from the agency culture, agency capacity, constituent culture, constituent capacity, and political and, and legal ramifications as well. So when they name it a roadmap, um, it is replete with strategies and tactics to use to try and cope with some of these issues that might come up. Right. Well, and one of the most interesting things about that wildlife value survey was that while, um, you know, associated with an increase in education, income, urbanization, like you mentioned, um, that shift toward mutualism was not necessarily echoed in um, wildlife and conservation staff. And so, you know, in an ideal world, our staff is made up of folks that are representative of the values and viewpoints of the constituency in which we represent. And so that survey kind of shed light on the fact that that may not be the case. And this roadmap is kind of like our, almost like a bridge or a tool we could use to be better in tune with that. Is that, would you say that's a good interpretation? Yes. Somewhat accurate? Yes. That's, that's really, yeah. Eloquent. Thank you. Oh, guys. <laughs> Hannah's got away with words. Thanks, guys. It's Friday. I'm excited. And I just look at shiny stuff. <laughs> no. I'm never going to hear the end of this. I'm sorry, never. Lindsay. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, you guys. But yeah, the roadmap is very daunting because it's, for one, just a, a large document. But one of our own here at Wildlife and Parks was involved with that. Darren Riddle was involved with um, helping write and draft that document. But this is something that was crafted by wildlife and fisheries professionals from all over the United States, different levels of, you know, managers, supervisors, fisheries, wildlife, everyone. It's a really good document. And I hope one day our agency will uh, fully embrace it. I think we, I think we are doing some of the relevancy roadmap stuff already. Mm -hmm. It's just not um, set in stone. It's not intentional. Yeah, I'd like to see it on that level, too, someday. Yeah, was, yeah, we were talking about that and how exactly like you said, it's not intentional. I think we're doing, and we kind of see this with R3, too, we're doing more than we realize. It's just mm-hmm. the intentionality of it and the being strategic about it that really starts to bring it all home. Yeah. Right, and documenting it, and when we do complete our work, being able to celebrate that success And once you celebrate that success, it really gives you momentum for the next step. So that's also part of the relevancy roadmap. Hmm. So Susan, I'm real curious. um, What 
are you most excited about when you think about the evolving role of human dimensions in wildlife management and conservation moving forward? Hmm. I would say, I think I mentioned it already, but I'm most excited about the level of credibility that human dimensions work is given. I I really see uh, the roadmap that we were just talking about. Um, so many of the barriers and strategies and techniques are related to social science. And so I really see the future of our agency and other agencies really investing in more information about people. We're really good at managing wildlife. <laughs> we, we understand the critters. We really, you know, we've, we've dialed in on that. And not to say there isn't more work to be done. We're constantly doing research on the animals. Um, like your quote in the beginning, though, you know, it's about connecting people to the land. We need to learn about the people. Oh, yeah. Well, it's like Lindsay's onion reference. Like there's just every layer of understanding that we peel back, there's another one underneath that we can dig deeper on. And it's cool that we get to um, chat with you a little bit about that and about what goes into making those connections and those relationships work. Okay. Now what concerns or stresses you about your field or your job specifically? Hmm. Well, first and foremost, I'm a mother and I really worry about the future of our resources, climate change, um, pollution, just how people in general are impacting um, pretty much everything. Um, I worry what sort of condition we're leaving our resources in that my children and their children are going to be faced with, whether it's drought, increased wildfires, new emerging diseases, um, you know, COVID may be just <laughs> the scratching the surface. Um, I worry about that. And I see human dimensions being a way to help um, understand and maybe be proactive about some of those issues. But man, that's, you know, especially climate change, that is a huge thing to tackle. <laughs> I share those same stresses and worries. And I don't have children. If you do, I hope they have as cool of a nickname as Squirmo. Oh, they will. <laughs> I might steal it if I ever have kids. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> well, Susan, we had such a good conversation with you today. I just glanced at the clock and I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah, <laughs> I we, forgot. It just kind of flew by. Where it's, is the clock? It's on, on my computer. In my arm. Okay, I was gonna say, there's no clock in this dungeon you guys <laughs> <laughs> all right she's not in the podcast room cut her out megan <laughs> episode deleted no um well we're, we're really glad to have you here even though you don't appreciate our podcast room whatever um i'm curious susan if you have any last thoughts that you want to leave our listeners with i do want to make a plug and remind everybody and me and my plugs i gotta find a different word but um, remind everybody to, when you do receive a survey or request for information in any form from KDWP or another trusted, um, you know, wildlife and conservation entity, do answer those surveys. <laughs> take the time to do that and take the time to do it as accurately as possible. Um, Susan is living, breathing proof that your voices are being heard and we want to listen to you. So please, um, you know, encourage others encourage yourself, um, give us the most accurate information you can and know that 
your answers to things like those surveys, they're making a real impact um, based on the work that Susan is doing. So answer them and answer them well. Yeah. In the long run, you'll be the ones benefiting from it anyway. Oh, yeah. Yes. We definitely are seeing response rates decline. And I get it. People are just surveyed to death. You know, you buy something from the gas station and you get a you know, survey on on your receipt. Like, I get it. We really do use this information and we are seeing fewer and fewer people respond. So please fill out the surveys. Help us. Help us help you. <laughs> yeah. One, make sure the emails you provide us to when you buy a license. Keep that information updated in your KDWP profile. Uh, make sure that we can contact you in an accurate way as well because um, if you'd like to respond to our surveys and you're like, wow, I've never gotten them, um, maybe check if you've got an accurate email address. <laughs> I've run into that before. For sure. All right. Susan, any other last thoughts you want to leave our listeners with? Uh, I wanted to just give a shout out to um, a project we have coming up. I'm really excited about this one. It starts in 2022. I think March is when we're going to kick that off. We are doing a creel survey on the Kansas River. And what we're excited about is learning about the impact of Asian carp or invasive carp on the users of the resource. So whether it's paddlers, anglers, whoever's using that river, we want to understand how these invasive carp are impacting them. So I'm really excited about that. We're going to be having a couple people out there in the boat going up and down um, the segment of the river in Kansas City, kind of right there at the confluence with the Missouri. and um, yeah, we're just, uh, it's a, doing a creel survey on a river is really difficult. So we are putting a lot of resources into doing this right. <laughs> and it's, yeah, it's going to be great. And we're going to get a lot of useful information about it. So if folks see you on the river, they should wave, right? Yeah. Hey. As I'm getting hit with a silver carp jumping in the boat. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we have an episode somewhere of Connor getting smacked with a carp? Didn't he like break a couple ribs? <gasps> Connor Osowski? What? I think he got a bruised rib, but it hit him somewhere else. Oh, no. Ooh. Sorry, Connor. A little lower. I didn't mean to bring that up. Very sorry. Well, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah, don't worry, we made it into a gif. <laughs> oh, my God. So you could just see the fish hitting him over and over. We love you, Connor. Oh, no. <laughs> he used to work in the research office with us, and now he's the... Uh, district biologist out at um, Mindlands. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I want to see that. <laughs> well, Susan, before we say bye, um, you shared with us one of your mantras as we were preparing for the episode today. Um, you said it was something that you repeat to yourself in your head and that it's always been about the people. Mm-hmm. And when we were preparing for that conversation, you kind of emphasized that fisheries and wildlife management in general is about people. It's how we impact the resource. And you, you know, drove home the point that we've done the hard work of learning about fish and wildlife. And now we have to do the hard work of learning about the people. I really, really love that perspective that you've got. And it is hard work. And especially now, um, you know, with COVID and all this stuff, we're just kind of sick of the human element, I think. But <laughs> it's, uh, I, I really like your perspective on that. And I appreciate your, uh, your steadfastness and sticking to that and, Thank you. Yeah, it, it's always about the people, for sure. You know, humans are on the landscape, and we impact everything at at some point in the system. <laughs> we are unavoidable. Um, how does Thanos say it? I am inevitable. 
Yes. <laughs> just got elevated. I love it. I love this nerd out. Yeah. Yeah. So how can we really um, effectively manage the resource if we don't also understand people? It's always been about the people. Deep. We're yeah. doing some deep dives. <laughs> Seriously today. deep. Well, thank you so much, Susan, for coming on. We cannot thank you enough. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, this whole episode. I learned so much from you. Uh, for our listeners, remember to share, subscribe, rate us, and let us know what you want to hear about next on the podcast because we are always trying to come up with new ideas. Get outdoors, keep exploring, and remember, flat is, is a, a state, state of mind. mind. Flatlander Podcast is made possible through a partnership between the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks and the Kansas Wildlife Federation. Sound and production by Megan Mayhew. Music by Kansas locals, The Box Turtles. Become a member of KWF for free by visiting kansaswildlifefederation.org. And be sure to follow KWF on Facebook at Kansas Wildlife Federation and on Instagram at KS Wildlife Fed. Stay up to date on all things KDWP by following the department on Facebook at Kansas Wildlife and Parks and on Instagram at the KDWP. Remember, the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks is supported by flatlanders like you through the sale of licenses and permits. Consider buying a hunting or fishing license today to conserve and protect the wild spaces and faces that make Kansas more than flyover country.